0: Hey everyone! Welcome to another amazing episode of For the Love of Money. I'm really, really excited for today's episode because I'm actually sitting down in person with Alex Benayan. Now, you guys probably know who Alex is. He's everyone's talking about him right now. He is the best-selling author of The Third Door. The Third Door is the book that originally set out to, you know, teach people or, or put together all of these stories on how the world's most successful people launched their careers. And when I say the world's most successful people, I'm talking every one of the most famous entrepreneurs in the world, except the book really turned into this seven-year project teaching how to connect and how to get a hold of anyone in the world. You're not going to believe these stories on how Alex connected with Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, Lady Gaga, Maya Angelou, like Jessica Elba, you name it. You name the celebrity, you name the entrepreneur, he found a way over the course of seven years to sit down with them and interview them. I've never heard stories like this in my life. Now, before we get into it, talk about connecting with epic, impressive, like-minded people. It's exactly what my mastermind does for you. And if you listen to recent episodes, you've heard that three spots in this year's mastermind, you don't even have to wait till the 2019 mastermind. This year's current mastermind group that you've been seeing all over social media, three spots have opened up. Sometimes life happens for people, and sometimes when life happens for people, it means they have to make a couple of adjustments, and we have three people where life is currently happening for them to give them a season of growth, but unfortunately, it means that they cannot continue on in the mastermind, and that means opportunity for you. That means three seats that have opened up to plug into this family that is already absolutely cruising along, people that are already doubling and tripling and quadrupling their income in the first seven months that we've been together... Yes, quadrupling their income. How cool is that? And you have a chance to take one of those seats. If you're a traditional entrepreneur, online or offline, brick and mortar or not, and if you are making multiple six figures to seven figures, then you've got to go check out this group. Go to fortheloveofmoney.com forward slash mastermind. We got three spots we're filling. Even if you applied for the 2019 group, go ahead and shoot me a DM saying, hey, I applied for 2019. I just heard this. I actually want to join the 2018 group. Shoot me a DM on Instagram at Chris W. Harder, and we'll set up a phone call if you've already applied. And if you have not applied, go check it out. Be nosy. All your questions and answers are there at fortheloveofmoney.com forward slash mastermind. Fill out the application if it appeals to you, and then to get your name to the top of the list because there's a lot of applications, shoot me a DM on Instagram, Chris W. Harder, that just says, hey, filled out an application. I really want to get into this year's group forthelovemoney.com forward slash mastermind. Go check it out. I can't wait to see who the new three family members are going to be for the rest of this year that will then continue on to the 2019 class as well. All right, so I've got Alex sitting here, and uh, let me tell you, this is one of those episodes that will probably free you up from anything that is holding you back. I already said it, but I'm going to remind you, Alex connected with Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, Lady Gaga, Jessica Elba. I mean, It does not matter. Mark Zuckerberg, it does not matter. The celebrity, he connected with them and the stories of how he did it, how he tracked them down, his stories of persistence and consistency, they will inspire you and they will realize how small you might be playing and they might remind you how big of an effort you could be giving because his book took seven years, seven years to finally get on store shelves. Talk about consistency and persistency to get this done, right? But more importantly, this interview and his book teaches you how to conquer and handle rejection. Do you know how much rejection Alex got when he was, you know, trying to set up meetings with Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and Mark Zuckerberg and, you know, Lady Gaga, like you name it. Can you imagine the number of doors you have to knock on and the amount of rejection you have to just... Be okay with getting and be able to reframe. That is one reason alone that this episode is probably going to knock your socks off and empower you to get to the next level. And there's so many fun stories too. Do you know how he funded this book while he was in college? Picture your starving college student, right? Not a lot of money to fund a project like this. He literally researched and learned how to hack the game show, The Price is Right. I'm not kidding. You're going to hear the story. It's also in his book. It's the funniest thing ever. He literally hacked The Price is Right in terms of figuring out how to be guaranteed to be on the show, went on the show, won the showcase showdown. <laughs> Spoiler alert, won it and won like 17 grand to fund this book. You're going to love the story. So guys, get ready. Take some notes. Listen up. Get into a place where you're really present because this episode alone could literally bring you to the next level if you are dealing with consistency, consistency, persistency or rejection. If you have any of that standing in your way, this episode is going to strip you of those challenges and I can't wait to see you move forward. Here we go. All right, Alex, my friend, how you doing, man? I am great. Thank you for having me. Seriously, my my privilege. When you said, hey, why don't I just come to the house and do it? I was (laughs) like, score. I already love this dude. So I know that you've been on a ton of interviews you're still in your book
1: tour is that right uh-huh okay how's it feel Are you keeping up you getting tired you full of energy it feels good and the thing that I've realized I know this sounds silly but getting sleep to me I used to think that the less sleep I had the more I could work now I've realized the more I sleep the better my work is
0: yeah it's funny I read I read about how do I say his name in your book um, chilo yeah chilo who Literally gets like four hours of sleep per night max. I can't do that. And Lori, my wife who you just met, she can't do that. We are like eight to nine hours of sleep type of people. And the thing is this. When I hear of all these other people out there like 5 a.m. club or, you know, cut your sleep in half. You get this many more hours of sleep. When I hear those things for a split second, I feel bad. Like maybe I'm weak or I'm not trying hard enough and I get in my head. But at the end of the day, I know what makes me feel good. I Mm. know what makes me produce. And sleep is one of those things. Yeah.
1: And the thing about Chilu is he trained his body to do that. Mm-hmm. It took him, you know, months and months of grueling training. Yeah. For me to just like flick the switch and sleep for four hours a night doesn't really work.
0: Yeah. Not going to work. Well, we're going to hear about him and, and so many more people in this interview. Again, I'm grateful you're here. So here's how my interviews work. Just to like pick up the momentum in a cool way for people to get to know you quickly. I do some rapid fire questions. Right? love it. Let's right? do it. And then if there's something awesome that comes up, we'll circle back to it. Sound good? Okay, perfect. All right. Start really easy. I already know the answer, but where'd you grow up?
1: <laughs> I grew up in Los Angeles. Yeah, so where do you live now? I live in Los Angeles. Yes, yes. <laughs> West Hollywood to be specific, right? Yeah. Uh, favorite quote? Ooh. Oh, this is like asking a film buff their favorite movie because this is these are my – I have like a list of like 100 of my favorite Especially quotes. Especially as
0: an interviewer and a writer, right?
1: The first one that came to mind, and it isn't even an accurate quote. It's like been misworded, but something Elliot Bisno told me. He said he had a quote that he put up above his bedroom, above his bed. And when he told it to me, I wrote it down and I put it above my desk for years. And it's, for he who believes all things are possible.
0: Oh, yes. I love that. I love that. What is one of your superpowers? Ooh, Courage. Yeah, I read that for sure. What is one of your favorite books beside your own?
1: When Things Fall Apart by Pema Chodron. I've heard of that. I've never read it. It is remarkable. Well, probably your life is great right now and you don't need it. But when things hit the fan, if anyone is going through a time where shit is just falling apart, there is no better thing I can give you than the book When Things Fall Apart.
0: It's a great recommendation. What is one thing you're challenged by right now?
1: Hmm. Family.
0: Oh, interesting. Yeah. Favorite speech you've ever given?
1: Ooh. Um, oh, that's a great question. Cause I'll do a bunch of these like corporate ones, but the one that's like in my heart forever is there was this teenage Jewish leadership convention. And I was like, what, what is this? This, I don't do, I don't, I don't do this stuff. And you know, a friend of mine was putting it on and I just, you know, went with a few friends and I went not really thinking much of it. It was electric because there was thousands of these like 16 year old kids who were so hungry and it was the first time. And this is before the book came out. It was the first time I ever told the third door message. And at mass, I saw thousands of kids' eyes light up. And I remember going on Twitter that night and just searching the convention hashtag, and kids were talking to each other, not to me, but to each other, saying, hey, let's go third door tonight. Hey, are you, th-? and they were, I was like, this is That's This is you it.
0: know you made impact, right? Yeah. When When they're not just trying to appease you or give you a shout out, when they're talking to each other, putting into action, yeah. That's when you made lasting change. That's awesome. couple more. Uh, what is one of your all-time favorite accomplishments thus far?
1: Ooh. I know this sounds weird, but it's my best friends. Yeah. And it's weird to think of that as an accomplishment, but these friends didn't just randomly fall into place.
0: I get that. You know... Finding your people, whether yeah. it's finding your people to build a business with, finding your significant other, finding the, the your tribe that you can count on that it's going to have the biggest influence on you. Listen, putting that group of people together is no joke. Yeah, and it takes work. Yeah, it yeah. does. It takes intention. The fact that that is your all time favorite accomplishment might be one of the coolest answers I've ever gotten to that <laughs> question. For sure, for sure. Who is someone who has changed your life?
1: Ooh, the easy answer is my mom, mm-hmm. but let me think of a more interesting answer. Someone who's changed my life. Yeah, Elliot Bisno, the, C- the CEO and founder of Summit Series.
0: It sounded that way. In a
1: dramatic way. Yeah. Dramatic.
0: A couple more. One regret you have.
1: This is a funny one because it always pops into my mind and it's so silly, but it's the one regret that always comes to me. You know, I don't believe when people are like, I don't have any regrets. Mm-hmm. I call bullshit on all those people. Yeah, You're just not thinking deeply enough. Right. And to me, and I get what they're saying, you know, they're grateful for where they are today, so they don't regret the decisions they made in the past or their mistakes. I'm with that. Mm-hmm. I don't regret my mistakes, but I remember there are moments where I could have been kinder, mm. that I wouldn't have lost anything, but I didn't out of fear. And I remember I was going in for a college interview. I was a senior in high school. I'm going in a college interview, and it was here at USC in LA. And I'm going in for this interview, and I was like, fifteen minutes early, but I was still so scared I'd be late and I would get lost. I'm like running to this interview, and this girl was like parking her bike on the bike rack and she accidentally knocked over like all the bikes. So like twenty bikes fell over and I saw her face like looking for help. And I like I stopped, I like made eye contact. And I was so scared I would be late, I just like left. Oh. And then I ended up getting to the interview with like, you know, 11 minutes to spare yeah. and I remember just sitting there before the interview me like fuck
0: all right so yeah. a girl who knocked over the bikes if you're listening i <laughs> I'm <is> sorry, sorry. <laughs> I'm he wishes sorry. he could go back and do it differently <laughs> I'm nation. sorry very last rapid fire question and this podcast talks a lot about generosity what is something generous that you've done recently
1: mm. Ooh, that's a great question because i never think in those terms mm-hmm. when people in my family are going through hard times um it's weird to even it's weird to even call this generosity because it's not generosity it's it's almost selfish because i'm doing it for my own happiness and their their happiness is my happiness but carving out like a day to just spend with someone who's going through a hard times someone who i love i guess could be call generosity. I don't feel it's being generous. It just feels like doing the right thing to support someone you love.
0: Uh, that makes sense though. I, I feel like generosity and just doing what is intuitively the right thing that feels good. They're one and the same. Yeah. Right. So, um, I don't think that disqualifies it by any means of being generous. Uh, for example, if you feel great when you give a hundred dollars to a guy on the street, that's clearly homeless just because you feel good doing it And just because it might be the right thing to do doesn't mean it's not generous. So I love that answer. That's fantastic. Okay, let's go a little deeper into the interview now. Okay, Dude, your book, I'm in (laughs) love with. I've been putting it all over social media, like everyone's messaging me about it. I had no idea how many of my friends are already reading it and loving it. It's one of the hottest books out there right now. And I read a lot, right? So number one, congratulations, The Third Door. Everybody's got to read it. Um, But tell us this story to start off of this 18-year-old pre-med kid who you know his parents one big dream is that you are going to become a doctor and instead of doing that you end up talking to and interviewing the world's most influential people like Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, Steven Spielberg, Maya Angelou, Jessica Elba and on and on and on yeah start with that
1: well like you said it the context is important that it was my parents biggest dream and not because they just wanted to go to a medical school graduation, they came to America as refugees from Iran with this one hope that if they give their kid, you know, if they sacrifice everything so I can get an education, I won't have to suffer the way they suffered. So when I, you know, came out of the womb, my mom pretty much cradled me in her arms and stamped MD on my ass, you know? And by the time, you know, in high school, I checked all the boxes. I went to pre-med summer camp, studied for the SATs. I wore, when I was in third grade, I wore scrubs to school for Halloween. Oh my God. Like I was that kid my whole life. And by the time I got to college, like you said, I'm I'm the pre-med of pre-meds. And I remember lying on my dorm room bed, looking over at this towering stack of biology books, feeling like they were sucking the life out of me. Mm. And, you know, at first I assume I'm just being lazy but very quickly, I began to wonder, maybe I'm not on my path. Maybe I'm on a path somebody placed me on and I'm just rolling down. I've been there. Right? And you're going through there. the what I want to do with my life crisis. And the worst thing about the what I want to do with my life crisis is no one wants to talk about you being in the what I want to do with my life crisis. People just want to just avoid it and assume your, your life is good. Yeah. So it's all I could think about. That's what I thought about when I was going to bed, when I'm in the shower. And eventually, it's, you know, like, it's this cloud that follows you when you're going through it. And slowly, my questions began to evolve into, you know, how did all these people who I looked up to, how did they do it? You know, how did Bill Gates sell his first piece of software out of his dorm room when nobody knew his name? Mm -hmm. Or how did Lady Gaga get her first record deal without a single hit under her belt? You know, this is what they don't teach you in school. So very naively, I just assumed there had to be a book with the answers. So I went to the library and I just did what I thought was normal. I just started, you know, ripping through business books and biographies and self-help books. And eventually I was left empty-handed. So that's when my naive 18-year-old thinking kicked in. And I thought, well, if no one's going to write the book I'm dreaming of reading, why not write it myself? You know, I thought I'd call up Bill Gates, interview him, interview everybody else. I thought I'd be done in a few months. That I assumed to be the easy part. The hard part I figured was getting the money to fund this journey. Yeah. You know, I would need money to fly up to Seattle and interview him because I thought he would say yes right away. So, you know, I needed quick money and I was buried in tuition payments. I was all out of bar mitzvah cash. Mm-hmm. So there had to be a way to make. Quick money.
0: Yeah, and and I remember reading your parents weren't exactly rolling in it at the time, right? It was everything they could do just to help you get to school, right?
1: Yeah, and like, look, we weren't, like, you know, we were far from poor. We always had food on the table. But yeah, my parents sacrificed, you know, there were two mortgages on the house. Mm -hmm. There were days that I remember, you know, a notice on the front door saying our gas would be cut off if we don't Mm -hmm. pay the bills. so. So there's a lot riding on this. Do you know the craziest part is that someone once told me the most extreme expectations are the ones that are never explicitly set. Mm.
0: Wow. Wow.
1: And they never sat me down and said, you know, everything's riding on this. But it was in the air, you know? Yeah. So, you know, I'm trying to figure out what how to get money to fund this dream because I'm not going to turn to my parents. So two nights before final exams, I'm in the library doing what you know, everyone is doing in the library right before finals. Yep. I'm on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm on Facebook and I see someone posting, offering free tickets to the price is right.
0: This story is amazing.
1: <laughs> so, you know, the game shows filming, you know, not too far from my college campus. And the first thought was, what if I go on the show And win some money to fund this dream. You know, not my brightest moment. Plus, I had a problem. Not only did I have finals in two days, I'd never seen a full episode of the show before.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, this is not a realistic plan.
1: No. It was, like, even I knew immediately it was preposterous. I'd never seen a full episode before. You know, I've seen bits and pieces when Mm -hmm. I was in fourth grade homesick from school. I'd never seen a full episode, so I told myself it was a stupid idea and to not think about it. And... I don't know if you've had one of these moments where an idea just claws its way back into your mind. Oh, for sure. Right. And you know, you try to shoot it away, but it just comes back harder. For me, it
0: was when I read 30 books in 30 days for like five days prior to that, from the first moment I thought
1: of it throughout those five, it got bigger and bigger and bigger, and I couldn't deny it. So I get it. Yeah. And you know, to prove to myself it was a bad idea. I remember I was sitting at this small wooden table in the corner of the library and I opened my spiral notebook and made the best, you know, wrote best and worst case scenarios on the top.
0: Uh-huh, the old list.
1: Right, to prove to myself it was a bad idea. Sure. And I remember writing, you know, worst case scenarios. Fail finals, get kicked out of pre-med, lose financial aid, mom stop, you know, mom stops talking to me, no mom kills me. You know, yeah. there's
0: I mean, these are like some real <laughs> shitty scenarios here. Yes.
1: Yeah, and there's like, you know, 20 cons and I remember my only pro was maybe Maybe we want enough money to fund this dream. Got 99 out of 100. No, 99,000
0: out of 100 Like, would say that's illogical, not a chance to go back to
1: study. And there's the thing. I agree. It was completely illogical. And at the same time, it felt like someone was tying a rope around my gut and was slowly pulling in a direction. So that night, I decided to do the logical thing and pull an all-nighter to study but I didn't study for finals. I studied how to hack the prices okay. right. This is great.
0: <laughs> all right, so how do you hack the prices right? I mean, growing up, I used to watch a show, actually. Obviously, when Bob I was day's. In school. Bob Barker Days, yeah. for sure. And your dream, especially not living in California, right? So it really seemed yeah. like this far-off dream, was that you would get on the show and win all this money and be one of
1: those people. So how how do you hack the prices right?
0: So the short version of
1: it, because... You know, it's this long, yeah, ridiculous yeah. story. The people,
0: you guys have to read the details. This is amazing.
1: Um, the quick version is that The Price is Right makes it look random. You know, Alex, come on down, as if they pulled your name out of a hat. Yeah. But what I learned in my all-nighter of research is that there's a producer who interviews every single person in the audience before the show begins. And then on top of that, there's an undercover producer mm. who confirms or denies the original producer selection. Mm-hmm. So it's not random. There's a system. So that was the, you know, original part of the hack. And then from there, the rest of the hack for me, it was less Einstein and more Forrest Gump, just, yeah. you know, bumping yeah. my yeah. way through.
0: As I was reading, I was dying of laughter <laughs> and I clearly feel like the uncomfortable moments in there. It's great.
1: Oh my God. Yeah. So
0: Do you think, and this is the most random question ever, do you think anybody has read your book and used that little hack, even though it's truly not what the book is about, to try and get on prices right? Has anyone written you or anything?
1: There's like, I don't know. What I do know is that I, before the book came out, I gave the Prices Right chapter to three different friends, mm-hmm. and all three got on the show in one process. No, yeah. no. So we're four counting myself. We're four for four on the Prices Right. All right, just
0: for social media, <laughs> I might actually go put this to the test. Okay, so you get on the show. We know that now. If
1: you're if you're serious about it, I could give you like a thirty minute training another time, dude. This might and be I, a
0: really good, like, funny episode for us to put we. On I or could
1: fully train you. It's it, <laughs> like be it a could a cool work.
0: Experiment. Okay, you guys
1: might see me on prices right now. So obviously you get on, <laughs> and what happens? I end up, you know, pulling this all nighter, going on the show the next day, and doing this ridiculous strategy, and ended up winning the whole showcase showdown, winning a sailboat, selling the sailboat, and that's how I funded the book. God, that's a great, and how much money did you get? I sold the sailboat for. which for a broke college student is a million bucks. bucks. I'm like walking around. I'm Bill Gates. You're rich at this point. (laughs)
0: Yes, Yes. All right. So you're like, I got my 17 grand. I've got my book in mind that I want to write. What's
1: next? So the first thing that happened was once I had this mission, you know, really to go and create in my mind, this, you know, Holy grail kind of guide that had, you know, all these people from all these industries talking about when no one would talk to them. No one would take their meetings. No one would take their calls. How do they find a way to break through? Mm-hmm. And it really was about a, you know, it wasn't about an age in life. It was about a stage mm-hmm. when you're just starting something new and you're just getting pounded with rejections. How do you find a way to get your foot in the door?
0: Yeah.
1: And my first problem was, okay, so now I had the money, but I've been saying, I'm going to go interview that most successful people, but how, ha- Who would be on my list? Yeah. How do you get to them? Yeah. Right. And, you know, my first idea was, okay, you know, I don't really believe in the Forbes 100 Mm -hmm. algorithms to make these lists. So I just called my best friends and they all came over one night and I said, guys, if we can make our dream university. Who would be our professors? That is so badass. Right? And it became very easy with that frame. And all of a sudden, my friend's like lit up. All right, Bill Gates would teach business. Wozniak would teach computer science. Larry King would teach broadcasting. Buffett would teach finance. You know, Maya Angelou poetry. Jane Goodall science. And that's how the original list of this book came together.
0: How many names made the list that night? Um,
1: I'd say a few dozen, a couple dozen. Okay. And how many did you end up interviewing at all? So it all, it all depends. Cause it was, it or became fluid the book, in the book. I would say is about a couple dozen. Okay. All
0: right. So I mean, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> that's, a, that's a, that's a pretty good batting average right there.
1: Yeah. Well, there's, you know, hundreds of people that I also reached out to who said no too at the same time. Yeah. But in the end, I'm very grateful for the ones who said yes. Okay.
0: So you have this dream list. Thanks to your friends who masterminding <laughs> session. And it's the biggest names in the world on this list. And I love how you joke about it. You're like, oh, Course, they're going to want to interview with me, right? You know, who turns (laughs) on a kid with with a bunch of ambition? But this is like when the real work started, so to speak. Mm -hmm. All right, tell me about that.
1: So, like you said, to my surprise, Bill Gates doesn't normally do interviews with, you know, 18 year old college students. Go figure. So, it ended up taking, you know, it took two years to get to Bill Gates, it took three years to get to Lady Gaga. And this whole journey was filled not only with surprising lessons at each interview, but with unbelievably surprising adventures to get the interviews. Yeah. So you know, with Larry King, I chased him through a grocery store. With Buffett, uh, I had that's to shareholders a great story, meeting. Story by the way. Tim Ferris, I had to crouch in a bathroom for thirty minutes. Yeah. Like, they all are their own adventures in and of themselves.
0: And they're amazing to read. By the way, you're an epic storyteller. Thank you, man. I I, I when I read the book, it's like I'm watching a movie. It's so visual. It's so I feel it. It's, you're an outstanding storyteller. In this <laughs> so you've you. got these massive names. You do all these crazy ass things to meet them. Who was the coolest one that you ended up meeting? Like the Ooh. the one that you'd want to hang out with in real life?
1: Oh, oh, Quincy Jones. Oh, I bet definitely Quincy Jones. I bet, I bet. You know, there's something. You know, with Bill Gates, he's just one of the smartest guys ever. It's his intellect is tangible in his presence at the same time with Quincy Jones Mm -hmm. you go in there and his coolness is tangible wow you like walk into his house and first of all his living room is like this perfect circle Mm -hmm. like it's designed to be a you know perfect circle and there's like gold light like shimmering on the walls and you look up to the roof and there's these 12 wooden beams coming out of the middle of the circle almost like a sun with rays and quincy walks in with this long blue velvet robe with you know gold trim on the <laughs> just edges just as you picture right right he, you know he walks in he looks like the alchemist and, you know he sits down and he's like he's like where are you from my man and i'm like well i'm from I'm from los angeles mr jones and he's like no i said where are you from you know, and he's just like, so cool. And you it's know, like in his DNA, he, he can't help it. He's it's in his DNA. Yeah. He's not trying. Yeah. And our 45 minute interview turned into two and a half hours. Wow. And with Quincy Jones, it was the only interview I can say confidently that I walked in one person and walked out another.
0: That is what an amazing statement about another human being, right? That he had that effect on you. That's incredible. So who made you the most nervous? And I love how you referenced, (laughs) how do you reference it? When you freeze up, you call it the flinch. um, Yes, the flinch. Who made you, who gave you the biggest flinch of
1: them all? Ooh, which interview or just which interaction in general? How about which interaction, which person? Well, I, I would have to say it had to be Spielberg in the very, very beginning. So right when I started. Okay. So I come up with this list with my best friends. I put it down on a note card and it sort of became my treasure map for the journey. Mm -hmm. And that first summer after freshman year of college, I'm going around and I'm, with anyone I'm meeting, I'm showing them this note card, asking them if they have any idea how to get to these people because I had no idea. And eventually this one woman was like, I actually know an event next month that Spielberg will be attending. It's a fundraising event, super small. How about if you put on a suit that day, I think I could sneak you in as part of the catering staff. Oh, wow. And I'm like, done. No deal. <laughs> and she's like, look, I can't guarantee that, you can, that you'll you talk to him, but I can just get you in the room. And I was like, amazing. And she's like, look, if I were you, I would prepare. And, you know, I did just that. Over the next month, I read Spielberg's 800-page biography. I watched every movie he's ever made. And finally, the day comes and I put on, like, my only suit. And I get to the event. And sure enough, 10 feet away from me is Steven Spielberg. Wow. And talking next to him are Jeffrey Katzenberg, the CEO of DreamWorks, and George Lucas, the director of Star Wars, and Jack Black. And I completely freeze. And I remember, I remember the sensation very vividly. It felt like my feet had turned to stone and my, And it still happens to me, my throat just completely clenches shut. Even if I tried to speak, it just, it won't come out. And I call that sensation the flinch. And I remember the first time I ever felt the flinch was in about third grade. I, it was during lunchtime and I walk into the elementary school cafeteria and, you know, there's those long wooden tables.
0: That used to be some intimidating territory. Right. Like, if you sit the at the wrong table. Who's right? Who. Exactly. Yeah, totally.
1: You can't sit at the wrong table. And, you know, I go over to my friends and I'm in third grade. And I'm sitting next to Ben and Harrison. And, you know, Ben has, you know, granola bars and soda. And Harrison has, you know, PB and J <laughs> with the crust cut off. And then there's me. With, you know, this giant Tupperware Persian stew with, oh. you know, rice. It's this green stew. And it's not like. is pre- that your cool kid friend. It's not like lunch. pretty green. It's like poo green, <laughs> you know, like, and there's like lamb and there's red kidney beans on top. And there's like these vegetables that I can't even name. And it, it must have been a really hot day because when I opened the lid, the smell just exploded oh. in the cafeteria.
0: You'll never hear the end of that in school.
1: Yeah, and you know, in third grade, that's your worst nightmare, because all the kids turned around, they're pointing, and they're laughing, and I remember just the heat rising in my face, and from that day on, I always kept my lunch in my backpack, and always waited until after school to eat.
0: Man, these little things that happen to us when we're young that stick with us, that form how we show up as adults
1: later in life, it's
0: insane, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and you know, I wasn't conscious of it at the time. Of course not. It wasn't like I was like, "Oh, now I feel not enough." No, I yeah, yeah. I was just like, "Fuck, I hate this feeling." All I knew is I hated this feeling. And that was sort of the start of the flinch and as I grew older, it grew with me. It developed into my fear of rejection, my fear of failure, my fear of being seen as different. And by the time I was, you know, 18 years old standing next to Spielberg, the flinch had its strongest hold on me ever. I can imagine. And it got to the point where I just stood there so long frozen that Spielberg just walked away. And what ended up happening is that, you know, I went to the bathroom to splash cold water on my face and I told myself, if I don't get over this, this whole journey will be over before it starts. So, you know, I go back out to the party and I see Spielberg on one side of the room. I awkwardly move to the other side. I see him on another side. I move to the other side. It's just this awkward dance and then eventually I see him heading for the exit and this adrenaline kicks in and I just freak out and I just start running through the party. Mm. I'm dodging waiters. I'm like going around the cocktail tables and I go up to him right before he walks out of the exit. I'm like, wait, Mr. Spielberg. And he turns around and he throws his arms up in the air and I like remember recoiling a little yeah. and he just gave me this giant hug. And he's like, because the fundraiser was on a college campus. He's like, I've been on a college campus all day and you're the first kid I ever saw. He's like, where are they hiding you, students? <laughs> you know, and he gives me this big hug. And I'm like, can I, can I ask you a question? And he's like, sure, just walk with me to my car. And we're walking towards his car. And, you know, I'm 18. I didn't have like a pitch for the book. So I just started pouring my guts out to him. And I'm telling him all about it. And finally I ask him, I'm like, Mr. Spielberg, would you, would you do an interview? And, you know, his eyes close, his jaw clenches, and he looks at me and he's like, honestly, I don't do interviews unless it's to promote a movie or my foundation. And then I remember him, like very vividly, I remember him looking up and like squinting, almost as if he was like debating something in his mind. And he goes. You know what? Even though I normally say no, for some reason, I'm going to give you a maybe. Mm. Go out and do this. Get your other interviews and then come back to me. And we'll try to make it happen. You
0: know what's interesting? I just want to stop you real quick. Yeah. I remember you when you told the story about Spielberg, you said he looked up like he was debating something. When you tell the story about, um I have it in mind, blank, like the world's greatest interviewer. Larry King. Uh, Larry King. He, he
1: pauses and he looks up, mm. right? There's this
0: pattern. What are they yeah. looking up at,
1: do you think? I have my theory. And what is it? First of all, these guys and the men and women of this caliber just get asked nonstop. A thing, a, 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 they just get asked, yeah. period, all day. So they very naturally have created instincts to just protect their time, which makes sense, which they should. I think in moments like that, though, what's happening internally with them is their instincts to protect their time become in conflict with their memory of what it felt like to be in my stage. Mm. Especially people like Spielberg or Larry King, who started their whole careers by chasing down people on the street, asking for help and for advice. Yeah. Yeah they just look within themselves and they're just like, how can I say I used to be that, that person? Yeah, totally. That would, that would make sense. And you know, that's why when you ask a PR person, the answer is always no hundred percent of the time because right. the PR person was never in your position. But when you're standing in front of them, looking in your, in, you know, looking in their eyes, it's much harder to say no.
0: That's incredible. So let me ask you this. Everybody has their flinch, right? Mm, their version of yeah. the flinch. And this is one of the biggest things that holds people back. They're too damn afraid to ask. They're too damn afraid to take action. What's your advice? Somebody, coming from someone who's gotten over their flinch a million times, the biggest names, what's your advice to get over your, quote, flinch?
1: Well, first of all, not easily. And I still deal with it in varying degrees. But something that I have learned on this journey is that, you know, when I had started, I just assumed that something was wrong with me because i assumed all these people i looked up to whether it's bill gates or elon musk they have to be fearless you know how else could they have done all these crazy things they've done they have to be fearless and i thought there was something wrong with me because i thought i had to be you know because i was so scared there had to be something that i was doing wrong and you have to understand ever since i was a kid i was like the most scared kid you would meet i had like a night light until i was 12 like i would never go on a roller coaster My friends always joke that like going to theme park with Alex is the most miserable experience (laughs) (laughs) because I I just have a lot of fear growing up. But what I learned when I started doing the interviews and doing this research over the past seven years is that every single one of the people who I interviewed was never fearless. If anything, they were tremendously scared during the process. Wow. And to the point where, Even with Zuckerberg or Gates, there would be stories that just showed how terrified they were. And that was this huge realization of none of these people were fearless, but they were courageous. And there's a critical difference between fearlessness and courage, but it's very easy to miss.
0: So it's this, the fact that you learn that everybody has the same level of fear, right? Might show up differently, might manifest differently. If anything,
1: some of them have it even more. Yeah. Yeah and what i've realized is the difference between fearlessness and courage mm. is that fearlessness is just jumping off of the cliff and not thinking about it yeah. which is idiotic in my opinion right yeah that's fearlessness courage on the other hand is acknowledging how scared you are analyzing the consequences and then deciding you still care so much about it. You're going to take one thoughtful step forward anyway.
0: Mm, that is so good. I mean, that lesson alone, that makes the whole episode valuable to mm. anybody out there who is stuck, who is paralyzed, who is a victim to their quote flinch. Yeah. Like that one entire point alone brings so much value. Thank you for mm. that. All right. So now you're freeing everybody up. Everyone's going to have courage galore, <laughs> right? Thanks to Alex. Tell me about rejection. And what I loved about your book is it was so real, now that we're on the subject of this. um, It was story after story of rejection. It wasn't these BS tips on like, here's how I got to this person, here's how I got. It was actually, it just showed you getting punched in the face over and over and over again. What was the worst rejection that you got?
1: Huh. It was definitely from Buffett. Yeah, why? Why? So with Buffett, what ended up happening was I ended up going on this eight-month quest trying to get an interview with Warren Buffett. And, you know, everyone knows he's the most successful investor in financial history. And I just thought if I get an interview with Buffett, like everything will come together. So I I had left school at this point and I'm now working full-time from 6 a.m. to 11 p.m. working full-time on trying to get an interview with Warren Buffett. And, you know, after a month two of getting rejected things start feeling really bad by month six you know things are like things are bad you know it got to the point where I was getting rejected so many times because I was writing letters to him over and over and over again I was calling his assistant week after week after week each no felt like you know he was winding his arm back and just slamming it in my gut and he wasn't actually doing that but that's how it felt yeah and there's this great quote by Paulo Coelho, where he says, you know, when you're in school and you get an F, yes, it stings. But when you're pursuing your life's work, and you're getting that F, you're getting that rejection, your whole body feels crippled.
0: Yeah, for sure. Because the significance of it being your life's work, Yeah, for sure.
1: So with Buffett, you know, I'm on this eight month quest of just getting slammed with rejections. And what I've learned is that two things have helped me the most when I've just been in this tornado, you know, in this blizzard of rejections, when you're in the darkest place, when it feels like you're at the bottom of the well and there's no, there's no light. And these are the two things that I've learned. The first thing is that, you know, do you remember the movie Castaway? Yeah. Love it. Okay, right. Tom Hanks, he's on this desert island. And there were many points, especially with this Buffett situation, where I was, I felt like I was on this fucking desert island of rejection where there was no hope in sight, no one I could reach out to. And what ended up happening is, you know, in Castaway, he starts talking to the ball Wilson and it becomes like his only friend. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't make him happy, but it keeps him like somewhat alive. And what I've learned is that when I'm on the desert island of rejection, my version of that Wilson is the core reason why I started in the first place. Mm. And when I had started this book, I had this very naive idea, which I still hold on to this day, Mm -hmm. which is that if all these people come together, not for press, not to promote anything, but really just to share their best wisdom with the next generation, Young people can do so much more.
0: Mm, I love
1: that. And there would be points where I was so, you know, all these people like in business or self-help were like, I've never thought about giving up. I'm like, that's not me. I've thought about giving up a A hundred times. times. (laughs) I, I even said, I give up at times, you know? And the only thing that's kept me holding on was that core belief. Now, I don't mean like I would go and meditate and think of that core belief and all of a sudden I would be energized and back to normal. No. The core belief though was like this thread that even in my darkest times I could hold on to and it would just keep me from completely calling it quits.
0: Were there any people along the way, one person in particular, I have no idea if there was or not, that pulled you back on track and did not allow you to quit
1: I'll go back to my best friends and it would never be in like a, you got to keep at it. Like aggressive pep talk. It was very gentle and it sort of takes you to the second lesson that I've learned about rejection, which is that, you know, you turn on YouTube and there's, you know, a million people yelling at you like, you know, never take a break 24 seven hustle, you know? And I'm just like, yo, take a fucking break every now and then, you know, Mm when things get really hard, there's tremendous value in, you know, turning off your phone for a couple hours. Mm -hmm. Like ice cream works wonders, (laughs) you know? And like, everybody is like, I am gluten free and sugar free. I'm like, dude, have a fucking bowl of ice cream every now and
0: then. Everybody is so everything free now that they're just a bunch of (laughs) pent up balls of shit, you know?
1: So, and my friends have been really good at that. When I would get, you know, full tunnel vision and I would just be completely depleted and wouldn't want to leave bed because I was so, you know, I just felt there was no hope. Mm -hmm. They would be so good at being like, dude, let's go grab a bite. You know, let's go, let's just take this weekend off. Let's go to the beach. Let, and what they've taught me is that, you know, look, it's not good to just, when you're working on a dream to just waste your time altogether. But the only thing worse than you know, an, an unproductive hour is quitting altogether.
0: Mm, amen. And so if true. It, and
1: if it means trading a few hours of productivity or a few days of productivity for you to keep at it and to recharge your batteries, do it because you'll be way better off in the long term.
0: Man, I love that. Obviously, nobody bats a thousand. Who did you want to interview that you did not make it happen?
1: Oh, so much. There's so many... You know, situation that didn't work. Um, One of the funniest ones that is the most tragic, in my opinion, was Mark Zuckerberg.
0: (laughs) Give us the high level, quick version of that. It's great.
1: The the high level of the Mark Zuckerberg situation is that about like 90% into my journey. So I'm like years into it. One of the people who we had mentioned earlier, Chi Lu, who was a president of Microsoft. He really resonated with the mission of this book, you know. Helping inspire people to believe in what's possible. And he's like, look, however I can help you, let me know. And I found out Chi and Mark actually know each other very well. So I emailed Chi one day and I was like, you know, I pretty much asked him if he can ask Mark if Mark would be in the book. And to my surprise, Chi was like, absolutely. Write me up a short thing and I'll send it to Mark. So I write up a short thing. He sends it to Mark. Mark goes, this sounds great. Give Alex my personal email address. And I'm freaking out cause I'm 20 years old and now I'm writing this message to Mark Zuckerberg and I end up writing this email and I was speaking at an, I was attending an event. Mark was speaking at the next week. So the ask was, can I meet you at the event and do like a, you know, do a quick interview there while we're in person. And I send the email a week later, there's no response. And now it's the day before the conference. And I emailed Chi Lu saying, hey, I don't want to, I definitely don't want to bother Mark, but can I just send one follow-up? And she goes, What are you talking about? Mark replied all like last week and responded immediately. I was like, What? I go to my spam folder on my email. This is crazy. And it's like Viagra, 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 Mark starts (laughs) working Viagra, Viagra, Viagra.
0: And Of all the people, by the way, to end up in a spam. Right, because
1: look, even Gmail thought there's like no chance he's he's responding to me, you know? And what ended up happening is I go to the event and the event coordinators and security team think that I'm an imposter. Wow. And that the whole email scheme was a fraud. So it all sort of came crashing together.
0: Imagine being Mark Zuckerberg, by the way, being like, who's this kid standing me up? Right. He's like, where's this kid who's supposed to meet me? Exactly. (laughs) That's crazy. Where did you get this obsessive persistence from? I mean, the book took what? Seven years. Yeah. Okay. Seven years of knocking down doors, getting creative, loopholes, favors, scary moments, you name it. Most people would give up. You had obsessive persistence. Where did that come
1: from? I think, so persistence is the means of achieving the goal. And I think looking back and from my research of all these other people, the means is a lot less important than people think. And while, yes, persistence is important, the reason this seven-year journey came to fruition and it finally worked had more to do with how badly I wanted it in the beginning. Wow! And, you know, Tony Robbins has this great anecdote. He says, he's like, look, who here would run into a, you know, if I said there's $5 in this burning building, who would go in there, you know, by show of hands? And, you know, nobody raised their hand. And he goes, what if I told you your mother is in that building? Every hand goes up. Every hand goes up. Yeah. And that and that anecdote is the answer to yeah. the question in the sense of, you know, if, you, if someone was like, hey, Alex, would you want to go interview – This, you know, this nice guy, but he's, uh, you know, runs this sandwich shop and put it on your blog and it'll take seven years for you to make this project happen. I'll be like, nah, I'm good, you know. But the idea that, first of all, I was just so, I was just in such, when I was going through my what do I want to do with my life crisis, Mm -hmm. I was in so much pain just from, it's weird because there's. I think a lot of people discredit how scary those times are. Yeah, When you're in that cloud of confusion, you don't know what you want to do with your life and you're sort of in this existential crisis. And on top of that, you have all these pressures of family and school and finances and how are you going to make a living? And I was just so desperate for answers. Mm-hmm. So I was burning with desire to make this happen. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, once I started talking about this with my friends, I realized they were all going through that crisis too. Wow. So the idea that it wouldn't just be for me and that it would be for my friends, and then eventually I was thinking, you know, hopefully this can help even more than that. That's what made it... You know, that's what fueled the persistence. I wasn't just persistent for the fun of it. Cause yeah. dude, I'm telling you there's nothing more miserable right. than waking up every day just so people can tell you to fuck off right. over <laughs> so, and
0: over and over again for seven years.
1: Right. When literally you're like, it's not like you're making money off this in right. a big way. Like it's just so it's not for, if you're doing it for kicks and giggles, mm-hmm. you'll be out really you're
0: quick. You're not going to last. And I'll, I'll even go to say, if you're doing this for money, this type of research project for a book like this, it's not going to last either.
1: If you're writing a book in general, for my yeah head, it's yeah. Probably, yeah, it's not going to last. It, it's not, <laughs> you you're going to have go, a rude awakening.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's
1: the people who, I don't remember who said this, but there's a quote that says, the only reason you should write a book is because not doing it will be even more painful than the mm. act of doing it.
0: Man, that's a great statement. Speaking of your book, this book is about how to open up doors. Yeah. Um, and what I like about it, it's not just how the celebrities and these A-listers and these world changers opened up doors at first when they were nobodies. It's also the story of how you opened up doors, right? So, I mean, what beautiful, like, synchronicity in, in that message. But that's kind of the message on the surface. What would you say is the single most important story or lesson in this
1: book? Hmm. When I had started the book, I... I thought the value of the book would come from, you know, all these tools and tactics that I could gather, you know, making this the most practical book I could. And while that essence is still in the book, you know, there's Tim Ferriss's cold email templates, there's Bill Gates's negotiating secrets, there's, you know, you, you know, Larry King's interviewing style, you know, all of those things are in there. And there's all these wonderful tools and pieces of, you know, incredible wisdom. At the end of the day, I don't think that that's the soul of the book. And what I think is the soul of the book is possibility. Mm. And I've learned that you can give someone all the best tools and knowledge in the world and their life can still feel stuck. But if you change what someone believes is possible, they'll never be the same.
0: God, I love that. God, I love that. It is so valuable that your 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 book is so valuable for so many reasons, but the way you summed it up right there. Absolute home run. So I've got to ask, throughout all these stories, you know, all these people you met are basically once in a lifetime type of people to meet, <laughs> right? And it was there were so so many stories where it was almost like fate was unfolding for you. So, now that you have spent 7 years Knocking down these doors, being consistent, persistent, facing fears. I've got to ask you this Is it fate and luck that finally allows these things to happen? Or is it good old fashioned making it happen yourself?
1: You know, that's something that I thought a lot of you can't write a book about success and not ask that mm-hmm. to yourself every day. And this is sort of what I've come to personally. I think there's a tremendous amount of luck. I think, you know, it's 90% luck, but I think people miscontribute, misattribute what that luck is. To me, the 90% of luck happens before you're even fucking born. Oh. You know, it's who your parents are, where you're born and what circumstances you're born. You know, dude, I'm very aware that if I grew up in different circumstances, this book wouldn't be possible.
0: Yeah. I mean, you're L.A. born and raised. You're like the um, story with Larry King. You're, you're in L.A. You don't run across Larry King if you don't live in L.A., right? right. If you're not going to school in L.A.
1: Yeah. And it's, you know, and there's also, you know, thousands and thousands of kids who also grew up in L.A., they just weren't. You know, my mom, being born to my mom, you know, she would be, I remember being in I think I was maybe like four, five years old, and one night just like waking up in the middle of the night because I had a bad dream and going to like her bedroom to to tell her I had a bad dream and I remember sticking my head inside her bedroom and this in the middle of the night, three o'clock in the morning, and she was like up at her computer working, and I remember you know not wanting to disturb her, so I go back to my bedroom and the next night I woke up to do it again and I saw her working, and. What I learned later is that my dad's used car lot went bankrupt Mm. and my mom was, you know, she was not only a full-time mom of three kids, you know, did all the cooking, all the cleaning, you know, she ran the whole house and she was also supporting our family financially. Wow. And, you know, like I said, you know, the strongest lessons are the ones that are never said. And, you know, my mom just instilled tremendous amount of lessons of hard work and, what I've learned is that that was my luck. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at the book, there's a lot of lucky moments. And dude, there are a ton of unlucky yeah, moments. Yeah. And I, I I purposely included like this story, like the Zuckerberg story or, you know, all of these stories that didn't work out to show that for every time it works, it doesn't work 10 times yeah, more.
0: I like that. Good balance.
1: Yeah. And Again, I I do think luck has a big role, but I think the, you know, if you're listening to this fucking podcast, Mm -hmm. that means you have access to the internet. Mm -hmm. That means you're smart enough to be listening to your podcast. You're not listening to some like, you know, gossip girl, like, (laughs) you you know, yuckle putsy thing. Like you have the mindset. Most people don't know that they already are 90% there. Wow. And I think that's a huge thing that I was only able to see after this experience. I was like, wow, I was born on third base. Man. And I think a lot of people think they're at first base when they're really at third base.
0: I'm so glad you're, you're bringing this up because even I, somebody who prides himself on trying to be present and grateful and you know really acknowledge all the people and all the things that work out in your favor, I can even forget just how much damn privilege and luck. Yeah that I've been given throughout my journey compared to other human beings with the same goals.
1: Yeah. The more, you know, the more you travel and the more perspective you get, the more you realize, like, if you're listening to this podcast, if you're listening to the Tim Ferriss podcast, you are 90% there. If you have the kind of mindset that you're looking for this, this kind of information, if you have a smartphone in your hand, you're, you're so close to achieving. You're way closer than you can imagine to achieving your dream. And you talked about, you know, is a luck or is a hard work? The hard work is that last 10% where you just fucking grind it out, where you're born on second base or third Mm -hmm. base and you just hit that home run. Man,
0: best answer ever. I love it. We talk on this podcast a lot about generosity. What role, if any, did you see generosity play a role in opening doors?
1: It's my whole fucking book, you know, (laughs) and not like it's my whole book. Like I talk about in the book because I don't think I actually use the word once. Right. But every single story is a story of a complete stranger saving my ass. Oh,
0: my God. I love that.
1: And I do believe, you know, there's actually someone who acknowledges it in the book. And she sort of like kicks down all these doors to help me get a literary agent. So I get a publishing deal. And I'm just looking at her and I'm like, essentially, I'm looking at her. and I'm like, I'm a stranger. I can't believe you're just moving mountains for me. And she just looks at me and she's like, Look, when I was your age, older entrepreneurs did the same thing for me. And she just shrugged and she's like, It's the circle of life.
0: Wow. I love that. We also talk a lot about wealth and money mindset on this podcast. After meeting all these uber wealthy, uber famous individuals, how do you view money and and wealth and success right now?
1: Ooh. Well, how I view it in general is one thing, but lessons I've learned about it. it, You know, one of the things I never went deep into that I would love to touch on, maybe at some other point, like we, there were so many, you know, spending eight months studying Buffett, Mm -hmm. you just accidentally learn a shit ton (laughs) about finance, you know, studying Gates, studying Jeff Bezos, you know, you just studying Sam Walton. There are, undeniable patterns. Mm -hmm. And the book is about success in general and achieving a dream. It's not necessarily about like how to be a billionaire specifically, but I just naturally, you know, there's a lot of billionaires in the books. What were one of those patterns, by the way, you never become a billionaire on salary. Mm -hmm. And I I know it's like the most, like every financial person states it, but I normally just roll my eyes saying like, yeah, they're probably getting paid by, you know, the Illuminati to say that, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like, But when you just do the research yourself and you study how Buffett made his money, study how Gates Mm -hmm. made his money, everyone made it with ownership of stocks and businesses. Mm -hmm. Equity makes you a billionaire. Yep. It's just, you know, there's a story of, I don't know if it was Spielberg or George Lucas, but one of them was super smart and got less money. It was one of the movies, I don't know if it was... You know, Indiana Jones. It was one of those big movies that no one thought would be big in the beginning. And I think it might have been George Lucas. He, so don't quote me on this, but he took, he made a deal mm-hmm. where he would take way less salary. And the studio was like, oh, that's great. Mm-hmm. And he's like, but you're giving me points on the table.
0: I've heard this story. I forget which one it is, but yeah, I've heard this. I, well, I think it was, and in it my, becomes an iconic movie. Right, right. And
1: that's how he became a billionaire, yes. you know? Yes. And there's just, All of these stories, you know, equity and compound interest are how you become wealthy.
0: So what's, what does it change for you going forward? How old are you? Can I ask?
1: I just turned 26 yesterday.
0: All right. So I'm 40. You're still a baby. Congrats. You are so (laughs) far ahead of me when I was 26. It's ridiculous. What are you going to do differently going forward?
1: Hmm. So I'm in a lucky position in the sense that I am a because of my age right now I can delay or I can have a longer term vision I'll say that I can see this you know just wealth in general I can see it as a 10 year 10 year plan as opposed to if I let's say had a wife and kids and I needed to pay for my kids schooling and I don't have that you know optionality because I do I'm able to plan my career and I can take, I can take, you know, quote unquote salary type things Mm -hmm. such as speaking and, you know, book royalties in the short term for the next couple years as I build out the 10 year long activities.
0: I love that. I love that. You've done so many interviews on some of the biggest shows out there. I'm, you know, he's showing up everywhere, everywhere. What question should somebody have asked you by now that they haven't?
1: Ooh. Ooh, that's a good question. What question should they have asked?
0: About the book, about your journey, about rejection, just anything. What, what has somebody not asked you that you're like, damn it, this is the point?
1: Oh, wow. I've never thought about that. It's not the point. The people people have been good about finding out what the point is. But something that I've been curious... You know, all of these shows are so positive, especially in this space. is so positive. I've been surprised no one's asked, like... You know, what was the fucking worst part of this journey? Yeah. Like, what was the grind? Like, everybody loves to talk about all the positivity of, you know, achieving a dream. You know, people talked about the rejection of getting the interviews. Yeah. But... Yeah, I was writing this book for three years and then I edited it for a fourth year. I've actually been, and I think it has to do more with just the space, you know, in the business, you know, this is a business book. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the questions for these interviews, of course, are about the business aspects Mm -hmm. of it, you know, dealing with the rejections, getting the interviews, the lessons from the interviews. Um, A lot of this journey was learning how to write. Yeah. And I, I haven't discussed much about the writing process and the writing was a fucking grind. In what that was itself. the worst part of it? <laughs> I grossly underestimated how hard a narrative is to write. Yeah. My, like a page turning narrative.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: Oh, you said something.
0: It was in an interview. I forget which one it was. But something how you learned how to create tension in every chapter or something like that, like so hard, you really yeah. honed in on your craft of being a writer yeah. and that's amazing.
1: And you know, I give all credit to that to my writing mentor. His name is Cal Fussman mm-hmm. and Cal is this incredible writer. He's been writing for Esquire magazine for mm-hmm. decades and he sat down with me for two to three hours a night, two to three times a week Wow. for four years.
0: There's generosity.
1: That, you know, again, I'm telling you, this whole book is, you know, off the backs of (laughs) other people's The whole book is
0: generosity in action.
1: It is. It really is. And it shows what happens when a lot of people come together and just give. You know, they don't give their whole lives, but they give what they can to a common mission. Mm -hmm. And it's been so that's you know, it's so funny when people like thank me for the book. My, what I hear is they're like thinking Cal Fussman, they're thinking Elliot Bisno, they're thinking Bill Gates, all these people who almost like donated. Yeah. <laughs> like it, it, feels like it was just, this is a nonprofit that people donated to. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And think of the, the ripple effect, the butterfly effect, you know, Bill Gates gives you an hour or whatever it yeah. was, you take seven years, you put it into a book. You really hone in on your craft. Someone reads the book. They get inspired to keep going when normally they would quit. And then they change the world, right? Like every little step along the way, every person who contributed is going to somehow have a contribution towards somebody who's going to end up changing the world because of your book. And I absolutely love the notion of that. I love the notion of that. All right. So where can we find you? And the obvious question is where should everybody be buying the book?
1: So buying the book is wherever – you know wherever you buy your books, mm-hmm. so whether it's Amazon or local bookstores or Audible or uh, Kindle, you know iBooks, wherever books are sold, you can find the third door there. And if you get the book from listening to this podcast, let me know on social just so I can say a giant yes, give giant us a thank shout you. out for sure. Um, and the handles are very easy. It's just all the same. It's at Alex Spinayan.
0: Awesome, awesome. All right, last question. I ask everybody this question: yeah. Why should people be unapologetic? about their pursuit of success
1: because you're going to die sooner than you think.
0: Whoa. Whoa. I
1: I really mean that.
0: Whoa. Um, that makes it that
1: that sounds really fucking morbid. No, but it's so real. All of a sudden it just adds urgency to, 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 to be, to be fair. Do you know what's funny before you even finished that sentence, when you said unapologetic and before you you took a pause, I already had the answer the second you said the word. Wow. And I'll tell you why, because it doesn't matter what you would have ended that sentence with unapologetically generous, unapologetically yourself. I think the reason people are the opposite of unapologetic, you know, the reason they try to conform is, you know, they think it matters. They Mm -hmm. think all of those voices and opinions matter. Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest lessons I've learned. So my dad passed away a year ago. I'm sorry. Thanks, man. And so my dad passed away a year ago. My grandpa passed away two months ago. My grandma passed away one month ago. So it's been on my mind a lot, obviously, the past year. It, this is the thing. When my dad was dying, there's this weird... I, I don't know if I'm the only person who has these thoughts. I didn't even know I had these thoughts. But I always thought like, you know, if you're good, you know, if you're quote unquote good, if you're Steve Jobs, if you change the world, like you get a fucking trophy at the end. You know, I I know you don't literally get a trophy, but I thought like, you know, something good happens. And if you're bad, if you're like, if you're not generous, if you're a mean person, you know, then life just fucks you at the end. And you know, when my dad was dying, I was just like, oh, it felt like I... It was like a spoiler alert. It like showed me the ending of the movie that I'm in. Wow. Dude, I just realized like you're going to die if you're a nice person or if you're a mean person. If you follow your dream, if you don't follow your dream. If you're successful, if you're not successful, it doesn't actually fucking matter. Mm-hmm. And I think people think I used to think it all matters. Mm-hmm. Like I thought being successful was important because I didn't know it. I just wanted like to not Die miserably. Mm-hmm. And I realize, like you're going to fucking die miserably either way wow. or you'll die. Un- you know, you can't control it.
0: Yeah.
1: And what's so liberating about that idea is that once you realize that whether you're successful or whether you're unsuccessful, whether you're happy or whether you're miserable, you're going to go to the same place, mm. then you can do whatever the fuck you want. <laughs> and that's why when you use the word unapologetically, yeah. I'm like, because yeah. you're going to die.
0: Yeah. You only get this much time. It doesn't matter. Nothing really matters. Nothing really counts. Doesn't matter. Just do it.
1: Do whatever you want, because in the end, you're going to the same place.
0: Wow, amazing, Alex Benayan, my friend. Thank you so much for writing this book. Everybody, the the link will be in the show notes. Get out to wherever you buy your books. Make sure you grab this book asap. I interview a good number of authors. I am standing here telling you this is one of the best books I have ever read for so many reasons in my life. The Third Door, get out there and get it. My friend, thanks for coming by. I appreciate you. Thanks for listening. And if you loved this episode and know of someone else who is as successful as they are generous, please pass them on to me. It would mean the world to me if you help me get this cause and this message out to as many listeners as I can. So please, if you liked what you heard, It goes a long way if you take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and share this with your friends. I'll be forever grateful and until the next episode, cheers to your success.